0: Would you please take your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. Today our passage is the last two verses of 1 Timothy. So this is the last time I'll ask you to turn there for a little while. 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21 is what is left for us today. This final concluding charge from Paul to Timothy and through him also to the church at large and to ourselves to hear what... Uh, the Spirit says to the church through 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Next week, we're going to be starting a new series. It's going to be a, a short, topical series focused on the idea of communion with Christ. What does it mean that we do, as believers, have communion with the living Christ, and how does that affect, change, and transform our lives through it? But today, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21 and let me ask, if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word today? First Timothy 6, starting in verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father, this is Your Word, given by the inspiration of Your Spirit, given to us that we might be wise unto salvation, wise unto sanctification, that we might be fully prepared for every good work. That You might fully equip us, transform us into the image of Christ. Lord, we we know that every word of Scripture is inspired, even the greetings and the salutations. Lord. We ask now that you will give us hearts that tremble at your word, help us to humble ourselves and to look to you for our guidance, to look to you for understanding, and to look to you for wisdom in your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. There's a little book by Randy Alcorn that's called The Grace and Truth paradox the grace and truth paradox and he tries in that book to sort of open up the vistas of John 114 for us that says Jesus came from the father full of grace and truth and says therefore that believers in Christ should be those who are committed fully 100% to grace as well as to truth he said we must not make the error of, of committing ourselves to one at the expense of the other that it It's often a paradox that we need to navigate between grace and truth, and yet we as believers in Christ are to be 100% committed to both. He says in the book that he has a small dog who loves to play fetch with tennis balls, and he will try to hold as many in his mouth as possible, which for this small dog is one. And he desperately wants to be able to hold two tennis balls in his mouth at the same time, and yet whenever he has one in his mouth, And he tries to pick up that second one. The first one goes squirting out the other side. His mouth just isn't big enough to accommodate that. And he says believers in Christ often find ourselves with that same experience trying to hold grace and truth together at the same time. That it's easy to be committed to perhaps one or perhaps the other. And yet so often we find that if we try to commit ourselves to truth that we sort of let go of grace. And if we try to commit ourselves to being fully gracious and fully loving and merciful, that that may be the truth ball just squirts out the side of your mouth. But nevertheless, we are to commit ourselves to both. He says this, he says, if we fail the grace test, we fail to be Christ-like. If we fail the truth test, we fail to be Christ-like. If we pass both tests, we're like Jesus. And a grace-starved, truth-starved world needs Jesus, full of grace and truth. These two realities, grace and truth, are, are truly the lifeblood of the church. It, it's impressive to me that John was able to sort of boil everything about Jesus down into these two statements. He doesn't go on with a great list that Jesus came full of mercy and love and compassion and righteousness and holiness. No, he just says two things, grace and truth. And as we look at the passage today, 1 Timothy chapter 6, the concluding words from Paul, he highlights these two things. First, there's the final charge from Paul to Timothy, verse 20. This is his final charge. It's it's to Timothy. It's through Timothy also to us as the church. And the final charge is to be absolutely, unceasingly committed to the truth. To guard the deposit. To contend for the faith. Committed to truth. And then the last words of the book is a, a blessing. It's a benediction for us. It comes to all the church, including Timothy. And it's this, grace be with you, grace be with you. May may we know and experience the grace of God as we fight and contend for truth, may we do so with grace right alongside. And so I want to look carefully at these two realities, truth and grace. First, here's his charge. This is the final charge from Paul to Timothy his beloved child in the faith, his protege, this younger pastor who Paul himself has commissioned to go to Ephesus to pastor this church in order to specifically contend for the faith. We remember back all the way back to chapter 1, he says, go to Ephesus, remain there in order that you might charge some not to teach any other doctrine. The very first charge he received was to pastor this church and to contend for the faith. To guard the deposit at this church, to charge people not to teach anything else. And he starts now to give his final charge, and again he says, Oh Timothy. Oh Timothy, we hear him, we hear the passion in this, right? We hear him addressing this young man, his protege, and we hear how much he cares about this particular charge of, of everything he said in the book. He's highlighting this one. Oh Timothy, guard the deposit. There's actually four places in 1 Timothy where Paul sort of addresses himself specifically to Timothy. We've been saying that Timothy is a book that Paul wrote to Timothy with the expectation that the whole church is sort of reading over Timothy's shoulder. And so it's, it's not merely uh, reading somebody else's mail when we all read 1 Timothy, but this is designed for the whole church. But there's four places, chapter 1, chapter 4, and twice in chapter 6, where Paul addresses himself Particularly to Timothy. Specifically to Timothy as the pastor of the church. And this is the final one when he says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. Guard the deposit. This is the charge. That in all things that he does, Timothy as pastor will contend for the faith, guard the deposit. This has been a main theme throughout the entire book of 1 Timothy. All the way back in chapter 1, he's beginning to tell him to guard the deposit, to stand up for the faith, to charge others not to teach any other doctrine, and this is the charge that he leaves him with. Timothy needs to have no doubt about what his role is as the pastor of the church, that he is to guard the statement of the faith of the church and not to let any false doctrine creep into it. This is the calling that's on his life. If you just read all of... First and Second Timothy, you, you would come away with no doubt as to what one of Paul's primary main concerns is for the church, and that is that they would have a purity of doctrine. That there would be a purity of doctrine that reigns throughout the churches. And the responsibility for that here in this book falls on the pastor, on Timothy, to guard the deposit, to guard that which has been entrusted to him. That's sort of the literal of the Greek. That which has been entrusted to you, that which has been put on deposit with you. That the truth of, of the gospel, specifically in the truth of God's word that's been given to him, is not something that Timothy is to alter or change in any way. Not something that Timothy has to come up with. He doesn't have to to pull sermons just out of the blue every week and decide what he should say to the church. But there is a deposit that has been given to him to maintain. A deposit to care for. A deposit to protect. When I worked at the bank and people wanted to put something on deposit in their safety deposit box. Their expectation was that, that we as the bank, we're not going to try to change it or improve it or play with it or mess with it, but that we would protect it, that we would guard it, and that we would be able to be faithful to give it back to them when they came for it. And that's what he says, Timothy, guard the deposit. It's a weighty charge, and it's a, such a, a broad charge About First Timothy. We ask, why did he make such a big deal of this? Was Ephesus just this particularly uniquely depraved city where there were more offenses to the faith and more dangers to the faith where, where Paul really had to be specific about this? Was, was the culture there just worse than it is today? Was this just a one-off unique situation? I have to say the answer is, is no. But he tells him to guard the deposit because of the preciousness of the deposit. Because when he thinks about what is at stake with this, he looks at the word of God and he says, If that is changed, if that is altered in any way, then lives are at stake. It's through the truth of God's Word that people are saved. It's through the, the Spirit of God taking the truth of the Word of God and applying it to people's hearts that people become saved, that they turn from their sins and repent of sin and put their faith in Christ. That happens through the ministry of the Word. And so if the Word is changed, if it's altered in any way, then that won't happen. This is the sacred trust, the sacred responsibility that this word of God is the source of all Christian truth. It's the means of God communicating his will to his people. It's the truth by which God is glorified. It is the means by which sinners are saved. It's the means by which God's will can be known and carried out. It's a source of direction and wisdom. It's the great proclamation of the mystery of godliness. It's the great warning against those who would destroy our souls. It's the message of hope for those who are lost. It's the sustainer and the encourager of God's faithfulness. That's what is at stake in the Word of God. And and so Paul takes this seriously in saying, guard this. Protect this. This is the charge that Timothy is to hear. If the truth of the Word of God is ignored, then the purposes of God will not come about. If the truth of the word of God is ignored in the churches, then the churches will not experience the purpose of God. If the truth of his word is not loved and treasured and proclaimed and exposited and held forth, then what are we left with as a church? What are we left with as a church? He's said back in in chapter 3, he says, the church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. A pillar and a buttress of the truth. That's the, the rock on which the church is built is the truth of God's word. Inerrant and inspired by the Spirit for us. This is where we get all of our direction as a church. This is what guides us. This is what gives us our proclamation. This is what teaches us the gospel that we proclaim so that people can be saved. So, what's going to happen if this is lost? We won't be a church anymore. Well, if the truth of the Word of God is altered or changed or lost, then what becomes of the church? We just turn into sort of this mutual admiration society that, that gets together because we enjoy one another's presence. Hopefully we do, but, but the church is so much more than that. It's the it's place where we meet together, not, not merely with one another, but with our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in corporate worship on the Lord's Day, in the presence of the Spirit, to worship Christ in spirit and truth. And, and we find direction for this. We find confidence in this, in the Word of God that's given to us. And so this is the charge, Timothy. Guard the deposit. Contend for the faith. One of the reasons, and there are many, but one of the reasons that that I really appreciate being in the PCA, which is our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, is because this is a denomination that has been founded on confidence in the Word of God. Confidence in the Word of God. It's not a perfect denomination, but we have always taken a strong stand on the issue of being faithful to the teachings of the Bible. This is, in fact, one of the main reasons that the PCA was founded 41 years ago, is because There was this group of men who believed in the word of God and were eager to uphold it and to to guard it, and yet they saw, sort of in the wider denomination, that many of the leaders were willing to compromise the truths of the Bible. They did not seek to uphold or to guard the deposit. They were willing to compromise with the the spirit of the age. And so various teachings and truths were being lost. Now, as I think about the issues that face the church today, many of, of those Issues are the same ones that face us today. That make it incumbent upon leaders of the church, but also the church as a whole to guard this deposit, to contend for the faith. To not be willing to compromise the truth of God's word in the face of the spirit of the age, in the face of the pressures that we may feel from secular humanism and the philosophy of the day, all of all of that 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 we learn from the world around us, those are pressures that still face us as a church. That, you know, Timothy faced a very specific set of pressures in his day. We don't know specifically what they are because Paul doesn't mention them by name in First Timothy although many have thought there's this sort of proto-gnosticism that's, that's starting to appeal to people in, in this time and it's starting to seep into the church and Timothy has to be on guard against that because that devalues the word of God it devalues Christ, it devalues the gospel. In our day it's different things. It's different things. I I couldn't help but think, I, I noticed this week, as I was industriously checking Facebook, I couldn't help but notice that in the little trending bar on the side, you know, where it tells you what's popular, it said Erskine College. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but Erskine College was right where we lived in South Carolina. It's a small, Christian, Presbyterian, conservative, super conservative college, about 500 students, in the town of Dewest, West, South Carolina, which is Nowersville, South Carolina. And I couldn't help but wonder, what in the world has gotten the attention of Facebook from Erskine College? Well, there was an article in the Washington Post about Erskine. Because apparently, a year ago, uh, two of their students on the volleyball team had, had come out. And now, just this last week, Erskine, the college and the seminary there, had released a statement on human sexuality, this It was about four paragraphs long. We would probably all read it and yawn. There was nothing exciting in it. It was just a very traditional statement of the Christian belief on marriage, who may get married, what they believe the Bible says about marriage. It was a very gracious statement. And yet because this small, insignificant Christian college had put out this statement on it, people all over the Internet were, were ridiculing them, mocking them, dragging their name through the mud, This uh, particular article I read showed a bunch of pictures of tweets that had mocked Erskine mercilessly for standing up for this issue. We're just in in this cultural moment right now in our society where uh, when a traditional Christian Presbyterian conservative college says that they believe a traditional Christian Presbyterian doctrine, people just go crazy. And you wonder, what is this? This is the spirit of the age that, that here is this topic of, of marriage and human sexuality that is such a hot-button issue in our day. That when a church stands for what the Word of God says about it it, it, it makes people angry. It makes people really lose their mind. And I couldn't help but think that this will be probably one of the premier issues, perhaps over the next, I don't know, 20, 30 years, where the church is going to be called upon to... Uphold both of these standards, one, to guard the deposit, to contend for the faith, to not be moved and swayed by the spirit of the age and the pressure from external sources, but rather to be faithful to the word of God, to seek to uphold truth. But at the same time, what issue out there is going to demand more of us that we be committed to grace at the same time? That we be committed to loving those who would mock us? to loving those who will be caught in the crossfire on this issue. As I think about what what Timothy was charged with and how that word will come to us today, what it means for the church in the 21st century, I can't help but think that issues surrounding marriage will be the issue of the day, where the church is called to uphold truth, grace, together at the same time and offer this to the world. Not to compromise, but to guard the deposit. And here's where Paul goes with this. The end of verse 20, verse 21. He says, guard the deposit. And and he doesn't tell us exactly what the threats are in his day. But here's how he describes it. He says, Timothy, avoid the irreverent babble, the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Similar to the way that he describes false teaching elsewhere in 1 Timothy. He's called it vain discussions, myths that promote speculations rather than stewardship deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons words that do not agree with the sound words of Jesus Christ that lead to an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels see he doesn't tell us what this false teaching is but he tells us where it comes from and he tells us what it leads to and here's what it leads to irreverent babble irreverent babble he tells us that you can recognize a teaching by its fruit you can recognize a teaching by its fruit does it lead to godliness does it lead to a new sense of humility and holiness? A new desire to be Christ-like? Does it lead to a new desire to sacrificially love one another and to serve one another? Now, now I want to help all of us to know how can we apply a text like this to our lives because the main application that of, of what we've read so far is for a pastor. Because he's speaking to Timothy, and he's speaking to him as the pastor, as the gatekeeper, as sort of the the theological guardian, he who's responsible for the the doctrine, for the teaching of the church. He tells him, guard it. But what about the rest of us? What about the rest of us? Look at at 2 Timothy in chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles, just the next page. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, he's going to give him the exact same charge, in 2 Timothy 1.14 where he says by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you he's saying the same thing but it's a different context in 2 Timothy it's a different context go back up to verse 8 2 Timothy 1.8 he says therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling Um, and and go down a little bit to uh, verse 11, where he's he's described this, and he says, For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. What what he says here is, is he's saying he is undergoing, Paul's undergoing a lot of suffering for the name of Christ. He's been thrown in prison but he's suffering. He says, I'm not ashamed. And he says, you, Timothy, you don't be ashamed either, but guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. Don't be ashamed when you suffer for the name of Christ, but guard the deposit. In other words, the, the context in Second Timothy, he's saying one of the dangers to the faith of believers is suffering. He's suffering. It, one of the, da- the danger in First Timothy is false teachers, false teachers who would deliberately bring heresy into the church. In Second Timothy, the danger is suffering, that he might be so persecuted and undergo such trials and hardships that he begins to compromise his own faith. And he says, no, Timothy, guard the deposit by the Holy Spirit that is given to you. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And so one of the ways that everyone needs to be on guard to contend for the faith is in the midst, in the face of difficulties and hardships. Will your hardships cause you to wander from the faith? or will they drive you deeper into it? Will they cause you to leave it, or will they drive you deeper into it? And and perhaps you know people who have had either one of those responses, who have been like the parable that Jesus says that some are the seed that grows up a little bit until the sun comes up, and the heat of the day is too much, and that plant withers away. He's saying the heat is going to come, so guard the deposit of the faith. Believe the gospel. Don't allow your heart or your soul or your mind to wander away into vain discussions. Here's what he says verse 21 back in 1 Timothy. Here's what's at stake. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Here's what's at stake. He says this is a life and death issue of guarding the deposit because by professing these other things, people are swerving from the faith. It's not a matter of some being being better theologians and other being worse theologians. He says some are being saved and leading to life everlasting and others are dying the eternal death because they're swerving from the faith. That's what's at stake in in the church's proclamation of truth. Now, let's move on to the end of verse 21 here. That's the last charge that Paul gives to Timothy. Here's the final blessing. And this is a benediction, the last four words of the book. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. If you read this in Greek, it's obvious the you here is plural. Grace be with you. He's speaking to the church. So he's just spoken to Timothy, a charge. Now he looks at the whole church and he says, Grace. Grace be with you. And and that probably doesn't stand out at all to you, because that's exactly what we would expect a book of the Bible to end with. But if you were Timothy, if you were reading this in the first century, that would have stood out quite dramatically to you. In the first century, the convention for ending a letter was to use the Greek word eroso or erosthe. It's a Greek word. It means literally be strong. It's like ending with farewell. Be strong. Do well. Do a good job in your own strength. Be strong. And yet Paul changes it. He doesn't say be strong. He says, may grace be with you. May grace be with you in, in your work, and your toils, and your labors. Don't be strong, but know the grace of Christ. May you know his grace that gives you a better week than you deserve. So try that sometime as you're, as you're leaving church today and you're giving your departing greetings to everybody. Just, just say, hey, have a better week than you deserve. That, may grace be with you. That, isn't that what grace means? May God's grace find you in all of you do. And, you know, that's not exactly what we would expect at the end of 1 Timothy. This is, if I can use the term, this is a manly letter. This is a charge. Fight the good fight of the faith, Timothy. Wage the good warfare. Toil and strive with all strength in the midst of those who are are, uh, making shipwreck of their faith. You are to engage in a course of training for godliness. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you. It's a book of manly charges to Timothy... We might expect him to end with it. Be strong. Gird up your loins. Fight the good fight. But he says this. He says, may you know grace in this ministry. May grace be with you. Timothy's ministry is to be empowered and strengthened and fueled by, by grace. That's the, the final word of this letter. This letter which has so many instructions for Timothy. But the final word, the final word is not one last charge. Not one last thing to do if he's going to save the church. It's a benediction. It's a blessing from the Lord. That grace may be over all that he does. That all the labors of his hands will be established. Because they won't be anything unless the grace of God is on them. So what's this mean for Timothy? Two things. First, Timothy himself, as, as a pastor, as a Christian, as a believer in Christ, needs to be grounded in grace. Timothy himself, each person in the church, needs to be grounded and strengthened in grace. Look again at at 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. 2 Timothy 2, 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I always found that verse a bit of a paradox. How do you be strengthened by grace? If you read the NIV, it says, be strong in the grace. How do you be strong in grace? It's by relying on the grace. It's by making grace your foundation. Trusting. In grace, he needs to recognize that the spiritual dangers all around him, in the church and out of the church, will always be too much for him. Being strengthened by grace means means recognizing and knowing at all times that we are insufficient for the task we've been called to, and therefore we will need something beyond ourselves. We'll need someone beyond ourselves to give us power, to give us strength, to give us ability. And that is to rely on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be strengthened ourselves by grace. John Stott says about this final benediction, he says, this church is to know that they would not be able in their own strength to reject error and fight for truth, to run from evil and pursue goodness, to renounce covetousness and cultivate contentment and generosity. And in these Christian responsibilities to remain faithful to the end, Only divine grace could keep them. He says this is to be the the flag of this benediction is to go over all of the book of 1 Timothy to know that all of these charges, all of these commands that have been given, you're not sufficient for them. You won't be able to renounce greed and to pursue contentment. You won't be able to reject error and to fight for faith yourself. You need the grace of God to bless the labors of your hands. We need the grace of God. So, So the question then for Timothy and for the church is what are are you strengthening your soul with? When you feel your own insufficiency, when you feel your own weakness, when you feel your own inability to do that which the word says, what do you encourage yourself with? Do you encourage yourself by running to the grace of God and praying for the help of the spirit to be with you by grace? Or do we seek to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, to encourage our hearts with with cheap moralisms to, to tell ourselves just to fuck up. We, we just got to get through this. We got to power through. Do we run to the grace of God? Because those moralisms, that, that won't last long. We know that by experience, I'm sure. So first, Timothy needs to strengthen his soul by grace. He also needs to minister out of grace. To strengthen his soul by grace and to minister out of grace that grace will be again, the banner that hangs over the whole ministry. How is Timothy going to charge the rich not to be haughty? How is he going to charge the church to pursue contentment? How is he going to fight for the faith once delivered to the saints? It's by the grace of God. Will he remember the grace that, that Paul himself could say that it's only by grace that God saved the chief of sinners? Grace was sufficient for him. And so... The charge of this book that it ends with is this charge to cherish both truth and grace together. It's a serious challenge for any church or any individual to hear. How do we cherish both grace and truth at the same time? That in all of our relationships, all of our friendships, all of our work responsibilities, our family responsibilities, how do we embrace as we work the, the charge to, to fight for faith, to guard the deposit, and to do so with grace being the banner that is over all things. We must never downplay truth. We fight for truth. We never downplay grace either. We never downplay grace. He says we must be 100% truth, 100% grace. This is a high calling. And, and I, would, I would tell us this, that hopefully, again, at this point, you say, oh, I am insufficient for these things. Yes. Yes, we are, and who is sufficient for these things? Only Christ, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think that means for us the only way we will do this is by running to Jesus. I really think the only way that we as a church and we as people can be fully committed to both of those is if we are first fully committed to Christ, to following him, having communion with him, to knowing what it is to be in fellowship with him allowing him to teach us, to guide us, and to lead us. And by relying on him at all times. See, there's, there's two types of people. Some people are truth people. We, we naturally tend towards that side of the pendulum. We, we love truth. We love theology. We love doctrine. We're all about fighting for the truth, and yet, yet perhaps grace, mercy, those things come a little difficult for us. Love, forgiveness, those are difficult. And that person needs to run to Christ. You see, that person needs to stand in the shadow of the cross and to see the cross with Christ dying on it, not simply as a doctrine to be defined, but as a Savior to be loved, as a salvation to be humbly embraced, that Jesus went to the cross for my sins, for your sins. So You can't, you can't show grace to others until you know grace for yourself. Uh, Paul Tripp says, you can never humbly serve another person if you think they need more grace than you do. never humbly serve another person if you think they need more grace than you do. And so for the truth person, we need to go to the cross and see Jesus. The second type of, of person is the grace person. Love and forgiveness and welcome, those come easily. But... Bible study, doctrine, truth, taking a firm stand for things. That's less easy. And what does the grace person need to do? They need to go to Jesus, to stand again in the shadow of the cross and to see Jesus on that cross dying for actual sins that are actual transgressions against an actually righteous God. And to see that Jesus himself, it, it was it was costly grace. Costly grace because he was perfectly righteous. We could go... Lee's sermon from last week when we saw Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. That Jesus, even in his grace, he never went roughshod over truth or righteousness or justice, but he fulfilled all righteousness. This takes practice. This is this takes practice. None of us are a perfect balance of grace and truth, and yet this I believe is the call for us as a church to be a church that stands on these two truths truth. And grace brings them together commits ourselves to both of these to showing these to the world and and the way we will get there is by committing ourselves first to being disciples of Jesus following him growing in our love for him growing in our knowledge of him and and what the Bible says we will be like him for we will see him as he is the more we see the character of Christ the more we see, who he is, the more we will be made into his image. So let's follow Christ together. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. It's challenging to us. It speaks a word that is difficult that helps us to feel our insufficiency for these things. And so we pray that you will take that insufficiency and that you will sanctify it into a humble sense of dependence on your grace and on the provision of your spirit to be at work in our hearts, applying the word of God and taking the truth that you have spoken and enabling us and empowering us not to be hearers only, but to be doers of your word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.